Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGB Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now here's your host, David Hinojosa. Welcome to another edition of Good Books Radio. This is your host, David Hinojosa, and today I am speaking with Madeline Paquette about her new book, Wine Folly, The Master Guide, Magnum Edition. She's the co-founder of the award-winning website winefolly.com, she is also a certified wine sommelier with Court of Masters and an active member of Guild of Sommeliers. She's also a writer and a visual designer. Wine Folly has been featured in Lifehacker, Wine Enthusiast, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and Forbes. Madeline, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. So I, was, uh, I really enjoyed your book. Um, I don't know much about wine, but I found it very informative, and I also checked out the website. Now, I read that you are a graphic designer and that you were also an electronica producer. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, in my in my past life, I grew up always wanting to be a musician. Um, I started playing saxophone when I was very young. Mm-hmm. Well, as young as you can be for holding a saxophone, because they're pretty big. Um, and uh, then I learned guitar, and I was in rock bands in high school, and I went to college for music. And then uh, this, I started to realize that if I wanted to be a rock star, I would probably have to have a side job to get me there. So I, I dual majored in art and design while I went to art school studying music. And uh, this ended up being the thing that I do most of now for a living. Um, it was... Uh, it was a decision that I made um, to, hey, I've got music, I understand music, I love it. Um, but I, I started to get into wine, and in 2008, I lost my job. That was when the crash happened, so I, I was one of the sort of fallout from that. Okay. And I went into a wine bar to drink my sorrows away. And by then, I was sort of interested in wine. And uh, the wine bar manager, the owner of the, sh- of the shop, happened to be there, and he was observing how I was I was observing the wine and thinking about it. I was thinking about wine more like I thought about art, sort of critiquing it and thinking about what I was observing in it. And he said, wow, you really know a thing or two about wine, don't you? I was like, oh, no, I just, you know, I just pay attention when I drink. And he's like, tell you what, you're talking about losing your job. Did you want to, like, maybe come and help me? You know, I could use all the help. I just opened this restaurant. You know, I could use all the help I could get, uh, you know, man in the bar. So I started working there, and uh, that was what sort of started my passion in wine. And then when I started Wine Folly, it was a conscious decision to sort of, hey, let's do this. Let's stop doing music and put that energy and passion that I have for music into communicating wine. I see. Now, did you start the website before you became a sommelier, or was this after you became a sommelier? After. So um, in by 2009, I was working in the bar pretty regularly, uh, and then I became a sommelier, a certified sommelier in 2010, mm-hmm. and then in 2011, I started the website. Okay, and what was the purpose of the website? Did you just want to inform people? Did you just want to educate the general public on uh, wine it was, drinking? It was tactical. It was very tactical choice to start the website. I had tried starting a blog before, but they were terrible disasters, <laughs> quite <laughs> honestly. Um and um, this time I went to my husband, who's sort of a 
a, a strat, he's a strategist. I would say that's his, his, what he does. He thinks about things in the long-term vision, the strategy, that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And so he built a plan for me um, on how, what I should do and what I should focus on. He actually built the website originally. He's a, a developer as well and um, helped me sort of develop uh, what Wine Folly was going to be. And originally we'd started out to be a, um, a, we wanted to start a wine club where we travel and you can taste the wines from different regions and learn basically through video courses about the wines. Mm-hmm. And um, that was a horrible flop. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wanted to buy the wine, but they loved my educational programming okay. that I did around these wines and, and the clubs. So we did a pivot really super early on, and I started making visual graphics about wine and figuring out how to monetize them. I see. Okay. And, and how, how do you become a sommelier? I mean, just to uh, – do you go to a specific school for this? Is a course? How does one become a sommelier? There are several ways. There are several ways. And honestly, you can self-teach yourself okay. and become a sommelier. But you need to work in a restaurant at some point or a wine bar, and you need to serve wine and you need to select wine. And you need to run a wine list to really be a sommelier. And, uh, but to get there, a lot of people choose a course. There are two major ones in the States, uh, Wine and Spirits Education Trust and Court of Masters. They're basically the two big programs. Court of Masters is a toughie because it's just a test. You study, 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 and you don't really know what's on the test. And you go take the test and you hope you pass. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, Wine and Spirits Education Trust is a little bit more like a school that you go to and you learn, and then there's a test at the end of it, and you pass or no pass. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's two different type of learning styles. I went the quartermaster route because I'm a little bit of a maverick kind of person. Mm-hmm. I like to prove that I can do things, and I don't like to be told how to do things. So uh, for me, that was the best way uh, to, to prove my knowledge, and I wouldn't have taken it. Had it not been for a friend of mine, um, you know, when I started working at the wine bar, it was in Reno, Nevada, and she's like, hey, if you ever want to do this anywhere else, you should really be certified. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that was the challenge, and I was like, okay, I'll do that, no problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was hard, um, but it's possible. It's possible to do with self-education. That's great. And, and you started, uh, I read somewhere in your website, you started drinking Cote de Rhone. Did I say that right? Yeah, you did. Okay. Um, uh, Cote de Rhone, you- well, yeah, was... Go ahead. It was an aha wine. It was the wine that I was like, aha, this ah. is what wine can be. Uh-huh. Oh. Now, we, I think we all have that. And what, what did you like about that wine in particular? Well, up until then, I thought wine was supposed to be fruity mm-hmm. and, you know, fruit forward and, and have all these other characteristics. This was the first wine I tasted that was truly savory in nature. It tasted like, it smelled like olives, like black olives. It probably had a fair amount of Syrah in it now, looking back. But um, I didn't know. <laughs> I just thought it was Cote de Rhone, which is a blend. It's actually a blend of grapes. Um, so I became obsessed with that flavor, and I wanted. I was chasing the dragon. I wanted to have another experience. So I tried to buy another bottle mm-hmm. uh, from the website that sold it, and uh, they had changed vintages. So I had a new vintage in, and sure enough, it didn't taste the same, and I was very upset <laughs> about that. Uh-huh. Um, and in that moment, I learned about vintage variation. I learned about how each year is different, mm-hmm. and you kind of, and then, and then that wine is no longer. You can't have a repeat. It's not Coca Cola. Mm-hmm. It's not a consistent formula every time. It's not like beer in that sense that it's a, that, that it's ingredients. It's a recipe. It's it's an, a reflection of the land and a place. You know, a place where we're from, and it's and every year the year is different. 
you know, we've had this year. How did this year feel politically, culturally? You know, how was the weather? Mm-hmm. Um, these are the things that go into these grapes. So I, I, I accepted that and I embraced that. And that's what made me passionate about wine. And, and would you say that Cote d'Aron is still your favorite wine or do you have a favorite wine now, a different one? I, I, I'm at the stage where I am pretty open-minded mm-hmm. and I like to taste a lot of different things. So I don't have a favorite right now. Um, although I do go through moods. If I, if you were to ask me right now what I want to drink right now, mm-hmm. hmm, I would probably actually want Gamay Noir, uh, maybe from Oregon. This is a grape that's a lot like Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. and it uh, has a little bit more bitterness. This has been a sort of a cool, bitter year in, in <laughs> the northwest where I live, and I kind of want a wine that reflects that. I'm already seeing fall colors on the leaves, and I think Gamay Noir would be perfect for that. I see. Now, when you were uh, traveling around the world, because you traveled around the world to different wineries um, uh, to expand your knowledge of wines, uh, what was the wine that you couldn't wait to try? Oh, I there was one wine. Um, I was traveling to Greece, mm-hmm. and I'd had the wine before. It's called Sirtiko. It's a white wine uh, from this little island, uh, Santorini. In Greece, Santorini is a beautiful island to visit. People love to travel there, but they make, it's a very bizarre way of training the grapes on the ground into these little wreath shapes. Mm-hmm. And I had always wanted to see it in person and get a chance to taste the wines. Because when you go to the region, you have the opportunity to really get in there and taste all and see the wineries and ask them questions and see how they behave and make decisions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got to do that. And that was one of those moments where I was like, yep. That was more everything and more than I had hoped for. Um, so that was recently of, of of the places I've been. That was one that really stuck out in my memory. Okay, and is there a wine that you tried and it surprised you? Whether it was better than what you expected, or maybe worse than what you expected, or not quite what you expected? Yes, there was. It was. It, it's an odd grape. You know, as an as an expert now, I'm on the fringe. I'm into the fringe wines, mm-hmm. <laughs> the weird grapes. And uh, there's a there's a style of wine that's becoming very popular called orange wine. So I was like, well, I've got to try it. And uh, I had, there's a very fancy producer, it's not a cheap bottle, um, but there's a guy named Grovner in uh, northern Italy makes this stuff. And the grape variety is called Ribola Jala. And I was surprised when I tasted this wine, it was like a red wine. It was a white wine. So an orange wine is a white wine made in a red wine style. Mm-hmm. And so they leave the skins in the juice, and they let the skins, which have tannin in them, mm-hmm. you know, touch the wine. And so here was a white wine or an orange-colored wine. It looked white, though. It was orange-colored, but it looked like a white wine versus a red wine, or maybe a really orange rosé. And it was tannic, like a red wine, like a Cabernet tannin. Mm-hmm. And that, would, to me, was like, oh, my God, white wine has can have tannin. This is a new thing. This is a new discovery. It's in and you drink it cool, and it's weird. It's a weird new experience. And so these orange wines now are very, they're, they have a very eclectic following, kind of like the weird beers, the sour beers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a weird eclectic following because they're so bizarre and so unlike other wines we taste. And so I sort of live for those moments, those discoveries of uh, n- new expressions of taking grapes and making wine with them and expressing it in a new way. And and are those wines, the orange wines, are those available in the United States? Can somebody just go to a liquor store and just you can find, find one? Yeah. You can 
can't just go to any old store. You got to do some digging for sure. They're pretty rare. They're they're like the one percent of the one percent of wines right now. Oh wow! They're still very very rare. Yeah, but they're, but they're for someone who is very into wine, I would say it's one of those must-have things. Um, but you know, it, they're starting to pick up in popularity. I've, I've tasted some orange wines made in America now mm-hmm. that are surprising, and um, it's really a very recent. Um, I mean, it's an old, old, ancient process, but um, the resurfacing of this style is is, is a more recent thing, and I, I like that. And how about price-wise? Uh, are these more expensive than your typical Depends wine? on who you buy. Okay. Depends on who you buy. I would say you're going to expect to spend over $20. You know, Grovner is in the 50, 50 or $60 range. It's not cheap, but... Um, the, there's definitely some great values. I picked up a, one from Canada, actually, for, gosh, I must have paid $12 for it. Great great little bottle of, like, an aged, like a Pinot Gris, I think, that was done in that style. Now, well, that's, uh, I, up till reading your book, I didn't know that orange wines exist, existed, ever. <laughs> um, again, I'm not very knowledgeable in wines but what i really liked about your book was that it was very organized and uh, it's very easy to follow and it's very concise and one of the things that really stood out were uh, the importance of writing notes uh, during wine tasting could you tell us a little bit more about why it's so important when you're expanding your wine database uh, why is it so important to take your mental (laughs) yeah your mental database your brain is so powerful at memorizing and classifying these wines that you taste Um, but you need to give it a leg up when you're tasting and just learning Mm -hmm. so taking notes does this thing where you're forced to translate what you're smelling into actual physical notes and writing down what you're feeling and it builds confidence amazing amounts of confidence Mm -hmm. uh, when you take great notes and the more you take more notes you take the better you get at tasting wine and the more repertoire you have the larger repertoire you have in your brain and honestly when i reflect back on wines i've tasted in the past and we're talking thousands and thousands of wines i've tasted at this point uh, i don't remember them that well uh, i certainly remember the taste profile but i don't remember it's a it's, it gets hazier you know your memory is not as strong so when i have good notes i i can go back and it actually brings up other memories that I had in that, at that moment. And since wine is such an experiential thing, you know, we're often with friends and sharing a moment together. It's, it's nice to take notes. It's almost like a journal entry. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the things that one should consider when taking notes? What are maybe top three things or top five things that whenever you're tasting well, you, wines, you, you really want, down? certainly, you really want, um, you know, we, we, you know, the, the four-step method is to look, to smell, to taste, and to, to think, to, to create a, a conclusion about this wine. Mm-hmm. Um, so you start at a very non-judgmental stage. Like, whether or not you like it doesn't matter. You just go, what is there? So it's, it's totally objective, and you're trying to be 100% observant. Um, and so that's one thing you want to do is to, to do that. Um, the other thing is to really force yourself to take three to five notes about the flavor mm-hmm. um, aromas that you smell in the wine before you actually put it in your mouth what do you smell mm-hmm. what are the three things that you smell and then when you taste it you're trying to taste how it feels on your palate it's not so much about how the flavors are on your palate that's more of a nose thing mm-hmm. um, we taste so much with our nose you want to feel the astringency or the sourness or the 
the oiliness on your tongue or how long the flavor lasts or how it changes from start to finish. And that's the taste of the wine. Um, so those would be the primary things to pay attention to when, pay, when tasting. I see. Now, uh, also decanting is a very important process, as you mentioned in your book, because uh, I didn't know the benefits. I just thought it was just marketing to just sell expensive wine containers. But in reality, it does have a, it does have a, a benefit. Uh, what I'm trying to say is wine benefits from decanting. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? It does. And, you know, honestly, you don't need a fancy. You could just get a glass uh, pitcher. A cheap glass pitcher would do a trick, the trick just fine. So you don't need to spend a whole lot of money mm-hmm. on a decanter. Um, but it's really the process of adding oxygen to the scene. The wine's been in a bottle. It's been in an inert, contained environment for maybe several years. Mm-hmm. And by adding oxygen to the scene, you actually create, you, you sort of start some chemical reactions happening, which might make certain compounds become smaller and less detectable, which is a good thing because wine can be pretty stinky when you open it up. And then uh, once that happens, it releases a lot of the aromas, a lot more aromatic qualities, and so you can smell it better. Um, and, and red wines really benefit the most uh, from decanting in this method, although there are several white wines that do too. So I'm open-minded. I've even had a sparkling wine decanted, and it worked. So I've... so. Be open-minded and try everything. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Now, uh, aside from the benefits of decanting towards the wine, uh, you also mentioned there's health benefits from drinking wine. Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? If if you stay within moderation, and this is the sad truth, is that moderation for a man is no more than two drinks per day, <laughs> and for women is no more than one, uh, there's some shocking surprising benefits to um, not just the consumption of alcohol, which is still a contestable thing. There are, there are studies going back and forth on this for years and years. We, we still don't know yet, so I can't say anything conclusive. But I will say that um, the uh, wines with tannin, that astringent, that bitterness, bitter quality that you taste in wine, mm-hmm. so even orange wines, those red wines mostly, um, actually have that astringency is polyphenols. It's an antioxidant. And it has some very powerful qualities that are that can be very good for you. Um, so if you're a moderate drinker and you have a glass at night, um, it's it's actually been shown to be um, longevity-wise, people longer than non-drinkers. Uh, mm-hmm. We have some people who have, live great, healthy lives um, who drink wine on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Now, going back to the whole moderation aspect, uh, you mentioned that women can. Mat- metabolize less alcohol than men. Why is that? Um, we have, um, you, you, there's a, an enzyme in our body called alcohol dehydrogenase. This is the geeky answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and men have more of it. They have it in their stomachs and their livers. And women only have it in their livers. Mm-hmm. So that's the physicality of the fact that men can drink more than women. And it's, I'm, I would change it if I could, but it's just, I'm, it's in our DNA. That's, unfortunately, that's the set that we're given when we're born, so we got to work with it. I see. Um, I do clever things, like I'll pour myself a half a glass, and I treat it like a glass, as, and then so I have two half glasses, and I drink a little slower, and I enjoy a little bit more um, that way. Um, but so I, 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 I advise people to, you know, to try to be moderate, and occasionally you'll cheat yourself, and you'll drink a little bit more, and to, to try to learn from that experience. 
especially if it hurts you the next day. <laughs> mm -hmm, absolutely. Now, um, th how subjective is wine tasting, for example? I mean, we have different palates. Uh, you know, how does that, how subjective is it you know, to drink wine? For example, something may taste good to me or sweet to me and might not taste the same to you. This is a great question. I think uh, as much as I want to give um, beginner palates the benefit of the doubt, uh -huh. I think if you learn a little bit more about tasting and you practice, uh -huh. there are some immutable things. Like tannin really does have a stringent quality on your tongue. Uh -huh. And different types of wines have different types of tannin that feel different. And if you can learn how to taste them, they should affect most palates the same. Of course, Certain people have different levels of taste buds on their palates. So that's where the subjectivity comes from. Is how tannic is it is not necessarily the right question to ask. Mm -hmm. It's more like how does it feel on your palate? And compared to other wines, would you say it's more or less? Because your um, tasting tools that you're given, your nose and your mouth, are going to be different than mine. Mm -hmm. and, and that's okay. But you can create your own repertoire based on your own level experience, which is why you need to practice tasting everything as if you're curious, because uh, you can you can really learn how to use your tools well. And, yeah, and and, and uh, I, I believe you're right, and and I think it also affects, you know, well, it has to affect food pairings. Like the the exercise that you had on your book, I thought it was very neat, where you have all these different types of food, and because you're tasting wines, it you have a different palate and certain things might taste better and I, I think um, that exercise alone is where you have something sour and something sweet and something bitter can you tell us a little bit about how this affects and how this helps you train your palate towards uh, you know food pairings and with well, wine yeah. mm -hmm. there's a little tasting exercise in the book that you know sweet, sour bitter, fat all these primary flavors that cooks work with mm -hmm. um, and if you start thinking of wine like an ingredient it has traits too it's got it has sourness it's on the acidic end of the spectrum mm -hmm. um, a lot of wines has bitterness some wines have sweetness and then you're working with the minute flavors of that wine some wines have more green herbal characteristics so they might pair better with herbal foods even mm -hmm. so you can match those flavors so when you taste just the base flavors you know sweet sour bitter fat saltiness and then you taste them against different prim the primary sort of styles of wine, mm -hmm. you'll learn a lot how those styles perform. And when I mean style, I mean something like rosé mm -hmm. or a light-bodied white wine or a full-bodied red wine. Um, so by doing a simple exercise with very base ingredients, you are really going to learn a lot. Will this also help us find out if there is actually a red wine that actually goes with fish? Well, that's a funny thing. You know, there was a study um, in Japan that was testing this, and they found that the wines with the tannin, the higher tannin, the mm -hmm. tannin does a weird thing when it, it gloms onto the fish oil, and it can actually make it taste very metallic. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, the reason why people don't like red wine with fish. That said, there are some low tannin red wines that go rather well with certain types of fish. And so you can you can totally get away with it, especially when you're using other ingredients in food. Mm -hmm. So I think the whole red wine with fish thing is it's a good rule to go with if you're just getting started. Um, but please do cheat later on. Mm -hmm. 
and experiment. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's that's key. You know, just trying different things out and knowing what goes well with your palate is is absolutely that's key. right. Uh, now, I don't know anything about wine. I'm interested in knowing more about it. I'm on a budget. What wine would you recommend for me to start with? If you don't know too much about wine, you want to taste more. I would taste. I would recommend tasting. Uh, maybe two bottles of, of red wine uh, to get your palate started and thinking differently um, that are very that have really really unique taste profiles. I would pick maybe a Monastrel from Spain or a Syrah from Australia or Shiraz, um, the same grape, and then I would pick maybe a Carmenere uh, from Chile or a Cabernet Franc from France. And the reason I pick those, uh, so I would do Monastrel and Cabernet Franc or maybe Syrah and Carmenere as a comparison. And the reason I pick those two is they kind of show extreme differences in wine. Mm-hmm. Um, Carmenere can be very herbaceous. It's a very herbaceous grape. And where it grows, it can have a very much more sort of a cooler climate characteristic. So a wine, that, a grape that grows up in a cooler climate might be more acidic, more tart, mm-hmm. and more herbaceous. And same thing with French Cabernet Franc. Um, whereas Monastrel and Syrah from Australia and from Spain are going to be rich and bold and robust. Mm-hmm. And those will teach you a lot about how the climate sweetens the grapes in different ways and how flavors are sort of created based on where the grapes grow. So as a beginning exercise, doing a comparative tasting with two very different grapes uh, would be one of the best things to do to train your palate. That, that's great advice, and, and thank you. I mean, I, I'll, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Um, one of the last questions I have is, uh, what are the top three wines do you recommend this holiday season? Well, we had a cool year this year. Um, there was an El Nino year on the in the West Coast, mm-hmm. and and it's going to be. It feels like it's going to be a long winter. Uh, the winter is coming, so uh, this year I'd be looking for wines with a lot of sort of spice, brown spice characteristics that sort of bring in the season, the warmth, warm you up from the inside. So grape varieties like Grenache, Zinfandel, Carignan, um, perhaps uh, Alicante Bouchette from Portugal would be a great, great choice for this holiday season. Really robust um, in their styling with a lot of spice characteristics that would sort of warm you from the inside out great those are that's great advice thank you so much madeline is there anything that you would like to add to our interview um i'd say if you want to know more uh, about wine and you're not sure about the book yet definitely check out winefolly.com we have a massive free resource there awesome well thank you so much for uh being with us uh, today i really enjoyed reading your book I love that it's very organized. I love that it's easy to follow. And uh, for someone who doesn't know much about wine, I can tell that I've, I've learned a great deal. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I wish you the best uh, w- with your book. There you have it, Wine Folly, the Master Guide, Magnum Edition, a complete guide to wine. Um, I've been speaking with Madeline Puckett, sommelier and co-author of her new book, Wine Folly, the Master Guide Magnum Edition, a wonderful read, perfect for the wine enthusiasts and beginners alike, and will make a great gift this holiday season. I'm your host, David Inojosa, and I want to remind our listeners that if you didn't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, 
on our NPR affiliate. You can listen to this interview on our YouTube page, Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening.